0: I'd like to pray and then dive into a passage that I think is, is pretty impactful. All right, let's pray. Lord, this week we have heard a thousand sermons, whether it was on the radio or social media, or conversations at work, um, advertisements, and a whole host host of other ways. We hear sermons, but most of them are not sermons of truth. They're sermons that are not according to truth. So today, would you allow us to have every bit of um, our senses, our awareness, Lord, our our hearts, our minds focused on you so that you could feed us. Lord, that you could shape us, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, we need you to speak to us. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to soften our hearts. We need you to allow us to see your glory We become so blind to it, and we look for glory in all these other places. So, Father, would you open up, break open the smelling salts and awaken us, Lord, this morning. Awaken us, Lord. I pray against the enemy, his servants, his works, their effects. I pray against distraction. Lord, I pray for your presence and your power. Lord, we are so weak. We are so needy. Would you bless us and pour out your spirit, Lord? I've prepared as diligently as I know how, um, and I rely on what you have already shown me. But, Lord, I open myself to you to preach anything, Lord, from this text that I have not yet seen, Lord. So enlarge in my capacity, enlarge in my capability, and do that with all of us, Lord, so that we'll have that 1 Corinthians 14 moment. We will say, surely God spoke to us. Surely God was in our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I really do think we need the smelling salts uh, opened up before us because um, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that most Christians have a radically individualized view Of their faith, most Christians have a radically individualized view of what their faith is about. The mentality often is, you know, I, I I may not get to church. I mean, if it's cold, I got to stay inside, and if it's sunny, I got to hit the beach, and if it's rainy, well, just blah, you know. But I have my quiet time. It's an individualized view of the faith. I think a lot of Christians might think, you know, I, I don't exactly. You know, concern myself with corporate prayer, but but I say my prayers when I'm driving. I'll throw a prayer up, and if I need an empty parking spot, I'll, I'll pray for that. We tend to have an individualized view of the faith, and if the reality uh, would land on us, I think we would have to admit that a lot of Christians um, view uh, church commitment a bit like the college dating scene. You're good until there's a little bit of a conflict or maybe something you don't like or maybe another church that looks a little better. And you're off to your next date. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Or would there be some truth to that? Now, to be sure, you must come to Christ individually. You can't come to Christ for another person and that other person can't come to Christ for you. You must come. But having recognized that, this personal relationship with Jesus lands you smack dab in the middle of a brand new family, the church. And that's why Christianity, far from being radically individualized, is actually radically communal. And one of the chief metaphors for the church in the New Testament is the body of Christ. And again and again, as we're gonna see in some coming chapters, you and I are called its parts or its members. Christianity is radically communal. And the greatest visual display of our blood-bought unity is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. The greatest display of our blood-bought unity is the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about this. The Lord's, what's another name for the Lord's Supper? Communion. Now, let's break down the word communion. Common union. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the common union we have with each other on the basis of the common union we share with Christ. Communion, and that's why, historically, when churches have celebrated common union or communion, they have taken from a shared or common loaf of bread and a shared or common cup of wine. Now there might be many sanitary reasons for why we don't do that, But I would say taking from a common loaf and drinking from a common cup is beautifully illustrative and depictive of the common union we have with one another because of the common union we have with Christ. Does that make sense? Now that brings us this morning to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Here's what was going down. The church at Corinth was taking communion which was supposed to reflect their blood-bought unity or oneness in Christ, and instead they were reflecting the divisions of the world. They were, again, not displaying unity in the Lord's Supper, they were displaying division. Stephen Um put it this way, instead of it being a sacrament of Christ accomplishment, it became a sacrament for their accomplishments. The very thing that was supposed to celebrate the eradication of differences was, in point of fact, putting those differences on blast and exacerbating them. And so, Paul's instruction for us would be summarized in this big idea simply take communion the right way. That's, we can remember that, right? That's the walk away. Take communion the right way. So we we move into verse 17 and he says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, that's an expression that appears four times when you come together, referring to the gathered church and specifically here in context to the gathered church celebrating common union. When you come together, he says, it is not for the better but for the worse. Now that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Communion is supposed to be for the good of the body. He's saying, you're doing it so erroneously, you're doing it so wrongly, it's actually better for the worse. It's a strong statement. He dials in on the issue in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, that last expression is classic Pauline understatement. He more than believes it in part. Paul has been addressing division in the church starting with chapter one. In chapter one, however, the divisions were predicated on favorites. They were factionalizing behind favorites. I like Apollos. I like Cephas. I like, all that. Remember that? Here it seems the division is rooted in worldly standing and personal selfishness. Now, Paul does acknowledge that division still flies under the banner of God's sovereignty, that God is not surprised, that God actually uses that division to filter out the fakes, to weed out the frauds, and sometimes expose the wolves. He does say that. Look at the next verse. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized so division does serve its purpose nonetheless the church is still required to pursue unity right and to reflect unity which is why he writes this book and why he writes this chapter now what he says is so bad in verse 20 that when you were taking the lord's supper you so corrupted the lord's supper that even though you say you're celebrating communion you ain't. look at what he says in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Well, wait a second. The elders distributed the elements, however they did it. They were celebrating communion, but he's saying it was so bad. When you celebrate communion, you're not even doing it. It's like, in, in in a much bigger way, when someone says, hey, how was the game? You went to a ball game, and you said it was such a bad game, it wasn't even a game. He is saying... You are taking the Lord's Supper so poorly, it's like you're not even taking the Lord's Supper. That's really strong stuff. Verse 21, he gives us more detail. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now here's where a little bit of context will help us. it was not uncommon in the early church for communion to follow a corporate meal, like a full meal, where various people, they would, they would bring their foods, and they, maybe a potluck, you would say, and at the end of that meal, they would actually celebrate communion. After all, bread was already there, wine was already there, so let's continue our fellowship in the worship of communion. That was, that was a common practice. And and Jesus Christ himself exemplified that when he took a full Passover meal, right? And he used that full Passover meal to inaugurate the Lord's Supper. So that's a little bit of the context. Now let me give you more. The ancient world did not have a calendar like us. For most people in our society, what is Sunday? Sunday tends to be an off day, right? Most people don't work, some people do, but most people don't work on Sundays like they do Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday. So it was just another day in which people were obligated to work. Therefore, and this is what commentators and historians tell us the early church meeting on the f- first day of the week. Why does the early church meet on the first day of the week, by the way? Why does the church meet on the first day of the week? The day he rose again. We see it by practice in the New Testament. And we also see it by precept. There's some instruction. So, by the way, this is just kind of an aside here. If you, if you hear about people who say we ought to meet on Saturday, seventh day at Venice, they are tipping off their hat that they don't understand that we are under the new covenant. And they are still putting themselves under the law. Now, we can meet other days of the week. It's not a matter of legislation. But they did meet the first day of the week, and that's the pattern that we follow. It was the day Jesus rose from the dead. But again, it wasn't an off day, and so what did the early church do to get around the the fact that people had to work? They would meet, and this is what historians and commentators tell us, very early in the morning and mostly um, later in the evening when everybody in the church could come together. And it was at that point, classism started to rear its ugly head. You see, the wealthy, they could, you know, far less bound by and constrained by schedules. They could show up basically when they wanted. Maybe they owned their own business. Maybe, you know, they just had the means where they didn't have to clock out. They could just come anytime. So, you know, they would, on the way to this worship service, this full meal followed by communion, they might stop at Whole Foods and buy $32 a pound ribeye steak and a nice $64 bottle of wine. Then the middle class, the, the tradesmen, you know, they, they, could, they, could, they could leave their work or they could clock out and maybe they would stop at Costco and get one of those roast chickens and some baguettes and stuff like that. And then finally the lower class and the slaves, they would just get away when they could or when their master would allow them and they would stop, I don't know, at a, at a corner store gas station market and bring an overpriced small bag of chips or a Little Debbie or something like that. But I'm talking obviously facetiously, but historians would say they would bring likely a piece of rough bread taken from their master's table. Now, what was going on was this. It says in verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In other words, they'd come and eat their food. They would come and they would eat their food, and they would come and really not have much food to eat. They were making it about themselves. It was becoming crassly individualistic. And by the time they were actually, as the church gathered, supposed to take communion, some were hungry still, some were stuffed, and others were drunk. Now here's what was going on. The tribalizing of the world, in this case by economic class, upper class, middle class, lower class, the tribalizing of the world was being displayed in the very thing that was supposed to mark the demolition of such differences as it relates to our standing one with another. Not the demolition of classes. There's always going to be an upper class. There's always going to be a middle class. There's always going to be a lower class. We see that in Scripture. And we're not talking about uniformity, but we're talking about union or true unity, And they were bringing those divisions up into the church. You could put it this way. Classism and carnality was on full display, not the cross of Christ. Classism and carnality was on on full display, not the cross of Christ. Now, would you try on this quote? This is by Paul Barrett from his commentary. What do I think of others in the congregation, especially those who may be Less educated or poor? Or maybe I could flip it and say, more educated and rich. Do I regard them as in any way inferior? Do I prefer the company of the clever, the the accomplished, the articulate, the wealthy? Do I avoid those on the other side of the spectrum? That's a good quote to wrestle with, don't you think? Good questions to grapple with. Back in the text in verse 22, Paul does not mute his absolute disdain for this behavior. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Should I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's pretty passionate right here, isn't he? Pretty impassioned. He says what they were doing and bringing tribalizing factions into, the, into communion, I think that was supposed to celebrate the eradication of that, he says, this is so bad, it is literally a despising of God and a humiliating of others, which reminds us that how we tre- pe- treat people horizontally says something about a relationship vertically with the Lord, does it not? And now Paul you know, with a lot of issues with Paul, really, as dogmatic as you think Paul is, with a lot of issues with Paul, there, there's two sides of the coin, right? Like, for instance, when he talks about meat sacrificed to idols, what does he say? He says, if your conscience allows it, go ahead and eat it, because idol's nothing. But if it's against your conscience, don't violate your conscience and don't do it. There's two sides the equi- to, the, to the issue. No two sides right here, is there? He says, what you are doing is flat-out wrong. Drop it down to the fourth paragraph, moving away from the first. This is what he says in conclusion. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it was, will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give you direction when I come. Paul is saying this, that if you are so hungry that you got to pig out, just do it at home. And otherwise, why don't you just wait? Because if you, don't, if you don't take communion the right way, you're turning communion into a cause of God's judgment on you as an individual and as a church. Now, the burden for me as a pastor in 2022 now is the arc of application from two millennia ago. Because our context is a bit different than their context, is it not? For one, we do not have a corporate meal followed by communion, though we do have potlucks, and I think maybe we ought to try that. I think that would be awesome. But for another, I don't think there are many people here who are having trouble getting a full meal. Now, we have different economic classes uh, represented for sure but I don't think anybody's not, having, not able to get a full meal. And if there is, we need to make sure we take care of that person, amen? Still, don't you think classism could exist here? It could rear its ugly head, for example, in who you reach out to and who you seek to connect with and who, who you seek to befriend and who you do not. And when you do step across lines, poorer to richer, richer to poorer, more educated to less educated, less to to more, all that, what are you thinking as you engage another person? What kind of feelings are coming to your heart and thoughts to your mind? Certainly, would you not agree that we're capable of bringing the world's fleshly, tribalizing tendencies right up into the body? Don't you think we can do that? Maybe you have feelings and resentments about a certain ethnicity. That could be possible, right? Maybe you have feelings and resentments about a way you think a person might vote. That could be possible, right? Maybe you have feelings and resentments about differing views on vaccination and differing views on masks. That could be possible, right? Maybe you have different feelings or resentments about where a person lives. And I could just go on and on and on, could I not? So while the context is not parallel, maybe there's definitely arcing application out of this for us today. Would you agree? And that is why we need Paul's instruction on how to take communion. In order that the church demolishes and not displays the sinful divides of culture. They're out there. And in doing so, displays and reflects our glorious blood-bought union in Christ. So I've given you half the message by way of introduction. So just take a sigh of relief, okay? We covered the first paragraph and the fourth paragraph. Now we're gonna go to second and third. And Paul has, I wanna hang hang this, this instruction on the right way to take communion on four words, three of which emerge right out of the text. We are to remember We are to examine, we are to proclaim, and we are to celebrate. Remember, examine, proclaim, celebrate. Verses 23 through 25, let me read them again. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus is not saying, let me be clear on this, that, his, that the, his, the bread literally becomes his body, okay? He's not saying that um, the wine literally becomes his blood, you understand that. A- Any more, for instance, than when he said, I am the door, we're not exposed to conceive of him now as a rectangular piece of oak swinging on some hinges. Or when he said, I am the vine, they were to think of him as some twisty green thing climbing up a fence with shoots coming off of it. No, he's speaking symbolically, right? And the, the clear point is the bread represents his body that would be broken for us, And the wine represents his blood that would be shed for us. And that's why he wants to do this. What's the word that's repeated twice in this small little paragraph? Remembrance or remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And we need that because, family, we so easily forget the gospel and drift away from it. We are chronic gospel amnesiacs. We're always forgetting. I mean, yesterday, try this one on for size. How often did you think of the gospel, Christ, his love, his sacrifice, his resurrection, as compared to any number of other things? Not that we shouldn't or can't think of other things, but how often do we think of that? John Piper has a really great quote that I want to read to you. On this, on this score, he says the Lord's Supper is a stark reminder time after time that Christianity is not New Age spirituality. It's not getting in touch with your inner being. It's not mysticism. It's not dreaming. It's not channeling. It's not good vibes. It's not going into neutral. It is this, a conscious directing of the mind back to history and up to Jesus, and what we know about him from the Holy Scriptures. It is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived, he had a body and a heart that pumped real blood and skin that really bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes in him might be rescued from the wrath of God. This happened once and for all In history, the Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of history. Bread and cup, blood and execution, body and blood. This takes us back to what we so easily forget. If I were to summarize the big idea I want to commute each and every Lord's Day when I have the privilege of preaching from God's Word, it would be this don't forget the gospel. I'll preach it from different texts. I'll apply it to different issues. But at the end of the day, don't forget the gospel. And if we were to crystallize, if I were to try to crystallize, you asked me the question, what is the best way I can serve my brothers and sisters? There's tons of ways, very tangible ways. But the ultimate way you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ would be reminding them of the gospel. How few of us have friends really that do that? Do you have relationships where people remind you of the gospel and all of its implications for all of life? Have you guys heard of Jerry Bridges? Awesome, he he, he passed away a few years ago at the young age of 86. Incredible uh, Christian writer. Written several books. Um, one is The Pursuit. I think The Pursuit of God is the famous, if, if that's the right author. But he, he did write this book. I've read it in the past. Susan and I are reading it again uh, right now in some mornings. It's called The Book Ends of Righteousness. Or The Book Ends of Christian Life. The Book Ends of the Christian Life. Anybody familiar with that book? Small little book. We You, you should read it. It's so good. He talks about the book ends, the things that we need to remember in our Christian life is the righteousness of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about, really, um, how much we need to remember and relish in the gospel because that then will galvanize, that will kind of create this, this, this chain reaction in our hearts that will create growth as we remember the gospel and relish in it. And he, and he traces this through uh, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, who already a believer, had that chain reaction busted up when he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He traces it through the sinful woman and a Pharisee who would become the apostle Paul. A number of examples. But he says these three things will happen. I want you to think about these things. As you remember in and relish the gospel, you will become increasingly aware of your sin in light of God's holiness. Now, I've known Christians who said we should never talk about our sin. After all, we're saints. And I, can I just say you that's flat out wrong? We are saints, but we're also still in the flesh, right? And we can say we don't sin, but John says you're a deceiver. The truth is not in you. I've had people literally say you shouldn't talk about it. No. You be, the more, that's the first thing in this chain reaction. You become increasingly aware of your sin in light of God's holiness. Now, now listen, that's coupled with number two. You become increasingly aware and aware of the forgiveness that you enjoy in Christ. And so instead of the gospel and the cross shrinking, the cross gets bigger. Because when you first get saved, you see a few big things, but you have no idea how much you really are infected by sin. <laughs> then you start trying to walk with the Lord, and boom, it comes out, right? You got a new heart, but you still got a flesh. And thus the third thing that happens is an increasing um, creation of love and gratitude and surrender in your life. Now is it not true that for most Christians their trajectory is this, they get saved in that first season after being saved is when they have the greatest love for God and others. The biggest gratitude, right, and the biggest degree of surrender, and then it just kind of peaks down, and you just start going through the motions. You know why? We're not really remembering and relishing the gospel in any deep way. So I'm not aware of my sin. I'm not aware of my forgiveness, and it's not growing those things. (laughs) That's an incredible book, very challenging. Now, I want to end this remember piece just by calling our attention to this phrase, do this as often as you drink it and remember it to me. Just before that, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I can't overlook this new covenant piece. The new covenant points to what the prophet uh, Jeremiah talked about, the prophet Ezekiel, in which through the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, God would rip out the heart of stone, right, and give us a heart of flesh that would love the Lord and follow the Lord and trust the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. But now let's get down to reality. Unfortunately and tragically, life, its suffering, its struggles, its setbacks, its heartbreaks, its failed expectation, don't, don't they all conspire to kind of harden our heart? Coupled with this chronic gospel amnesia thing. And before you know it, our heart is hard. You ever been in that place? Like, doggone it, my heart is hard. You ever felt that way? I don't care what you think. I don't care you know, you, you get hard in your heart. And this reminds us wait a second, brother, wait a second, sister. God is giving you a new heart. And that just starts to melt you like, why am I acting like such a stinking jerk with a petrified heart? It's a beautiful truth. Now, I, I just close this examine, or this remember thing by, by, by saying this the power that we can know as a church. And the power that you can enjoy as a Christian is not in discovering something new, but in going back and re- and re- and rediscovering something that we so easily forget, the gospel. Number one, remember. Y'all with me? Number two, verse 27, examine. Let me read verse 27, next few verses with it too, but let me just read verse 27 right now. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Did you note the word unworthy? You see that in verse 27? I want you to note what he says is unworthy and what he's not saying is unworthy. He's not saying... Um, It's not referring to us, let me put it this way, it's referring to our approach or our manner, whoever takes an unworthy manner. In other words, it is not an adjective describing who we are, it's an adverb describing how we come. We can come in an unworthy manner. We are unworthy, right? That's why Jesus died for us. But if you've received him now, now we need to celebrate communion in a way that's Worthy of him. So this is what he says in verses 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself. Examine, there's the word. Then, and so eat of the bread and cup, drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the stakes are high on this. He says, verse 27, you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord if you don't take the table in a worthy manner. Um, Verse 29, you will be drinking and eating judgment on yourself. So we really want to know, what does it mean to examine, right? That's a good question. What does it mean to discern the body, as he puts it in that next phrase? And there's, there's, there's several views out there, but I think, it's, I think it's a tandem of two views, personally. First of all, to discern the body, to examine myself, it, it, I would boil it down to this. It's actually on the back of your sheet. Two of the questions that we're going to kind of interact with on Wednesday night. The first question is this, so oh, that's not the Well, you have it with you. Um, am I really thinking about the sacrifice of Christ and what it means for how I am living and how I should live? Am I really thinking about the sacrifice of Christ and what it means for how I live and how I am living? In other words, is my theology getting down to the shoe leather, Right? Is, is what I believe about God and the gospel actually impacting the way I do life? To put it negatively, how can I really say I'm remembering Christ died for me, boom, as I celebrate communion, when I'm still nurturing and cherishing that sin, I'm remembering he died for me? How can I really say I remember he died for the sin of my resentment when I'm still nurturing resentment? How can I say he really died for my sin of partiality when I'm still nurturing partiality? How can I say he really died for the sin of selfishness when I'm still feeding and fueling this selfish monster? How can I say I'm remembering he really died for my pride when I am fueling? You see, you you just go on and on and on. I think it was D.A. Carson who said, it is absolutely blasphemous to say, I accept your forgiveness of my sin, but baby, I'm going to continue. He didn't say the baby part. That's just me adding to it. I'm going to continue in my sin. Huh? That's really blasphemous. That's not examining yourself. That's not discerning what he's died for, the body. Now, some say in verse 29, he's switching reference from body to body of Jesus physically to body of Christ corporately, and he very well may, because in the next several chapters, that's what body's going to refer to, and with that as an understanding, and I think it very well may be uh, true as well, the question would be, what does it mean to examine myself? Am I really loving and serving the body of Christ? Do I prioritize this people I have a common union with more than others who I think I have more in common with, but eternally I absolutely do not? It's a good question. Verse 30, this is what he follows it up with. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And you say, good night, Lord, can't you just lighten up? Weak. Ill? Died? I'm guessing most husbands here, if you're a husband worth your salt, you want to defend the honor of your wife, right? Yes, man? Yeah. How much more do you think Christ wants to defend the honor of his bride Now, of course, of course, of course, not all weakness, not all illness, not all death, right, is a direct correlation of our disobedience and taking the Lord's Supper over and over and over in disobedience. Let's be clear about that. Remember John chapter 9, the guy born blind? Pharisees said, well, who sinned for him to be born this way? His parents or him? And the Lord says, neither. But so I might show the glory of God off. So we want to be careful with that. But we also don't want to rule it out. In fact, when somebody's sick and they call for the elders of church to anoint them and pray for them, a very good thing, one of the questions is, is there any sin to confess? This is here, is it not, brothers and sisters, as a warning, a loving warning for us. Look at verses 31 and 32. But if we, judge, but if we judged ourselves truly, that is, in light of the context, examine ourselves right, discern the body, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, when discipline does happen in the form of weakness, sickness, and even death, it's painful, but the merciful love of God is not condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You know what is scarier? For someone to take the Lord's Supper communion time after time after time after time after time after time and not get weakened and not get sick and not get taken out. Because then that might in point of fact show you are not a child of God. Because God's good at chastening his kids in love. You're yet under the wrath of God. D.A. Carson tells the story of a young single guy called into pastoral ministry in the 1930s. He was called to a rural church that was shot through with divisiveness and factionalizing and sexual immorality and materialism and partiality and all of that. And for 18 months, he preached his heart out to this congregation. And not a stinking thing changed. He couldn't even do church discipline because the power brokers of the church were sharing in those sins and vices. And it got so bad that after 18 months, for three months straight virtually, he would go to his office, throw himself on the floor, pleading with God, crying and praying, Lord, I can't take this anymore. You got to get me out of here. I can't handle this you got to send somebody else in to clean this mess up. Somebody with the skill set and the gifting. Somebody like the Apostle Paul. I, I can't do this. Send somebody in to clean it up. And then he prayed this. And if you won't, will you clean it up yourself? And did you know, over the next three months, he did 34 funerals in that church of just over 200. And then did you know that the next 12 months, there were 200 baptisms? God was purifying for a witness and revival. We should be, as Carson concludes that illustration with, very careful about such prayers, right? Very careful about such prayers. But but God loves his church, and he's jealous for her glory and jealous for our good. And this, 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 this very ordinance reminds us that God is not a stingy forgiver, but quick forgiver, right? This very ordinance reminds us that God leans over and postures himself to forgive as we examine, and the Spirit says, you need to confess that. You need to get right with so-and-so. He does it out of love. And if you are not convinced he is a quick forgiver, Just look at Jesus hanging on a cross, arms stretched east to west to forgive us all of our sin. So second of all, examine. Now, I run with this proclaim and celebrate. These are quick points. Verse 26 says this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you know that when you are taking communion, you're literally proclaiming the gospel. That's what this says. It's, it's, it's a generic word for preaching or heralding that Paul often uses. It's all through the New Testament. Preaching. So in just a moment, look around. We're all going to be preaching the gospel to each other. Those of us who are in Christ, walking in faith and repentance, who can celebrate this in a worthy manner. Communion, in other words, is not some private practice. I'm very uncomfortable with with this idea of private communion. Because communion, by its very essence, is a public proclamation. I'm not saying it should never be done. There's there's various situations with with elderly and sick, and people should join them. But, But what I am just trying to emphasize, this is not so I do it myself kind of maverick event, right? This is a public proclamation given to the church. And when we do it, we're helping remind each other that (laughs) Jesus met us in our sin and made us his sons and daughters. And family, um, I I would just say this quickly. If If you're not a Christian, you've already heard what the bread and wine represent. The body and blood of Jesus. And if you haven't trusted him, it would not only be silly for you to to participate. It would actually be, frankly, blasphemous because you haven't, you haven't trusted him. So as we reflect, as, as, as we take the elements, I just want you to reflect on what everybody's preaching. Jesus broke in body and shed blood for, for sinners like us. And it may be that as you eat, as you watch us eat and drink, as you watch us preach, you might say, I want in on this family, and he would receive you. This man, the scripture says, receives sinners. And family, we're to do this until he comes, it says, right? It says, until he comes. Why until he comes? Because we keep forgetting, right? We keep forgetting. We're always forgetting. How kind of God is he not to give us this visceral and visual reminder to help us remember because we always need reminding because we're always forgetting. We're chronic gospel amnesiacs. Now, finally, we're going to celebrate. What do you do? You remember? You remember? You examine, and you proclaim, but finally we celebrate. You've already heard me refer to the Lord's Supper communion as celebration several times because this is ultimately what it's about. It's a celebration. Oh yeah, we examine, but we also enjoy. And yes, there's a seriousness to it, but we're not all solemn. After all, this ain't a funeral. It's a party. It's a celebration. He's alive. Now, again, I know the exact word is not in the text, but it is in the framework of communion. Did you know that when the first communion service was held, Jesus and the apostles left. They went up to, uh, was it Mount of Olives? I can't remember specifically, but it says they sang a hymn. And it was likely Psalm 118, which I will read when the elders are distributing the elements. And until he comes, reminds us that, you know what? He is raised, and he is returning, until he comes, right there in the text, reminds us he is alive and he's coming back at any moment. Someone says, Well, how do you know that? He came a first time, he's going to be good on a second promise to come a second time. And when he comes, you know what he's bringing with him? He's bringing supper for the church. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb right there. He's bringing a great meal. Read about it in Revelation 19. Can you imagine what a reunion it's going to be? Saints from all time, everywhere. Like a lot of round tables or a real long table. Can you imagine the family reunion t-shirts? If you've seen reunion t-shirts, a lot of faces, a lot of names on them. That's what he's going to do. He's coming back with a meal It's going to be an incredible celebration. And listen, that's why communion ultimately points us towards the time When we're going to have the everlasting experience of the fullness of salvation. In other words, when the gap between our position and our practice, boom, finally collapses. And instead of setbacks and sorrow and struggle, there's nothing going to be nothing but never-ending satisfaction and everlasting celebration. Would you not agree that often in this life we limp? Sometimes we leap. but A lot of times we limp, right? But this celebration says that even if you are limping right now, and probably everybody's limping in some way, well, you can still leap. Because this celebration reminds us, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. If the elders would come, Katie and Tanisha, One of the things I've been concerned about as we've been taking communion, especially in this COVID era, is that just us grabbing our own little cups um, and our own little wafers just seems to emphasize how individualized we made Christianity. So we're going to invite everyone to drink from this cup and eat from this loaf. I'm, I'm, I'm joking about that. I'm so, sort of, honestly. Um, but what we do want you to do though is like we used to get in, get in line right here, get in line right here, and come and grab uh, one of the servings, okay? And then wait, uh, go back to your seat and wait so that we can take it corporately. Does that sound good? Because this is us eating of a common loaf and drinking from a common cup, celebrating our common union because of our union with Christ. So would you guys get in line? Don't be bashful. Get in line.